Uh, welcome back to most of you, and if it's your first Sunday, as Emily said, I want to welcome you guys to our church. Um, we are in the book of Zechariah right now, so if you are, are new to our church, or maybe new to the book of Zechariah, new to the genre of the prophets in the Old Testament, maybe brand new to the Bible, just a brief uh, synopsis on what um, the prophets are, who they are, and what ministry and purpose they serve. Uh, Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament. Uh, we call him, uh, along with his contemporaries, the return prophets, uh, one of the return prophets. And so he spoke and ministered and spoke forth uh, the truth of God to Israel as they were returning from exile uh, from Babylon. So as they were kind of closing the gap of distance between God and themselves, God initiating that return, it's very important to understand that, that God is a God who wants to be close to us. Uh, that, that is a common motif and theme throughout the whole Bible. In fact, you could summarize the whole of the Bible with that one phrase. God is relentless to be close to us. He, he wants to be near. He wants to draw close. He can't stand the thought of being separated from his people. And so he, he's going to these great lengths to bring us back. And the Old Testament is full of these stories of return. Israel is kind of this, we've called Israel before, even in this series, a microcosm of the human experience the world's experience, and so we look at them being separated from God, we see our own story. We look at them being exiled from God, or some of the individuals, like maybe think of Ruth, or other individuals in the Old Testament, like Abraham, or the whole nation, and everything in between, small groups of people being separated from God and his land. When God calls them back, it's a sign of salvation. It's a symbol of what God's going to do later in the story when he truly brings us back to himself, because God cares much more about geography and one nation of people in the Old Testament. He is a God of all nations. He's a God of the whole earth and all creation, the, the God of the cosmos. And so as the story progresses from small to big, the prophets then serve this role, this purpose of kind of coming in between the former stories and this latter story that pertains to Jesus and how he brings us back to himself. So when Zechariah speaks then in 520 B.C., uh, give or take, he's speaking with Old Testament language about the future that pertains to Christ. So one of the best ways to understand these heavily symbolic and these prophetic books of the Bible is, the, is kind of a dust statement here, I realize, but understand the rest of the Bible. Understand the stories that come beforehand so that you know what they're referring to and the language they use about people and events and festivals and laws and things. But then especially understand what comes after. Understand more about the New Testament. If you want to understand this book, understand more about Christ, because the whole book's about the gospel. The whole book's about this good news of God bringing back people to himself through his son's death and resurrection. Everything's about that. So if you understand that, that point of clarity, that climax of the whole of the story, then the smaller parts fall in line, and they make more sense. And so we've been teaching through that and teaching kind of the how to do that as we've been preaching the book throughout this series. Uh, but if that's still a new concept to you, don't worry. I mean, that, that's a difficult thing. It's a, it's a journey. It's a process of learning. Uh, but it, it is something to say because it's true, but also because it's helpful. Uh, you're going to see, if you're new to this book, this is a very symbolically, uh, symbol-laden, very heavily symbolic and a prophetic book. And so without Christ, it remains hopelessly veiled. Uh, he is the, the ultimate fan that blows at the haze. He, he is the, the, the ultimate point of clarity in the scriptures. So, uh, so with that in mind, at least have that, at least just understand these are gospel visions. Zechariah is the man who's getting these visions and dreams of the gospel of Jesus Christ 500 years beforehand, before they break into history uh, through Jesus' birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, and the establishment of the church. The church is a big part of this too. 
So let's read then Zechariah 6, 1 to 15. If you want to open your Bibles to that passage, we're, all, we're in all the chapter 6 today, uh, or your phones if you have a Bible app or something, and then, uh, but this will be on screen too. Great to have it in front of you though as well, so that uh, I'll be flipping through these slides kind of quick, so if you want to kind of go back to something, uh, you have it in front of you. So go ahead and take a few minutes uh, or seconds to do that if you want. Uh, but Zechariah 6, 1 to 15. Uh, today we're going to be looking at this idea of the priest king. Uh, is, is the main uh, subject matter. We'll come back to that in a second uh, here, but Zechariah 6, 1 to 15 uh, is, is the passage. Verse 1, again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go to the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. All right, so basically there are two visions today. There's a vision of four chariots and a vision of this priest king I mentioned before. We're going to spend the vast majority of our time in the latter vision. It's the more important one. I think it's the one that the first vision kind of sets the stage for. And so we'll talk just briefly about the first one before moving on uh, to that second one. So the first vision is the vision of these four uh, chariots. And I'm sure it made perfect sense as, as we were reading it to all of you. Uh, it is a notoriously difficult passage to interpret in Zechariah terms. So I say that. It's a difficult book in general, but this is like, I think, kind of the crown jewel of difficulty you know, in the book uh, in terms of, uh, and I say this personally, I say this in terms of uh, pastor, theologian types, commentator types, um, who have spoken to this passage in writing and with words throughout history. Uh, it's a very difficult passage to understand. In fact, John Calvin, uh, one of the reformers in the 16th century, the pastor theologian, wrote this in his commentary on this passage about the colors. So this is a part where he's trying to understand the colors of the horses and what they mean. Uh, he says in his commentary, As did the color of the horses, as I have already intimated, have toiled with great anxiety, as though I venture not to assert anything as certain, Yet the probable conjecture is, and then he goes on to speculate. So basically he's saying, I have no idea what this is saying, but here's my best take. 
then he goes on to speculate about the color. I'm not even going to mention it because I don't even know if I agree, and it's kind of inconsequential. Uh, we could apply this sentiment, though, I think, to the whole of the passage, the whole of this first vision. And that is, none of us really know for sure what's going on. We can take our best stab at it. Uh, we have to approach this, approach this humbly, not just with the color, but the whole of it. So my best crack at this is as follows. As we use, and I encourage you guys in this, I've done this before, but if you're new to the Bible, especially uh, consider this an interpretational or hermeneutical help or advice. When you come across a difficult passage, ask the question, where else does this come up in the Bible, and is it more clear there? And if it's more clear, use that passage to help decipher or understand the foggier parts. And so with that principle in mind, a couple of things on this passage, big picture things, trying to avoid some of the details, though there's probably much more to say here than what I'm about to say. But to use other parts of the scriptures, these four creatures or creatures like them, and this is just kind of a general thing, when you see visions of God in the Bible, in the prophets or elsewhere, uh, you see sometimes, a lot of times, four creatures that surround the throne. So in Ezekiel 1 in the Old Testament, Ezekiel's another one of the prophets, when he gets a vision of God, he sees uh, four creatures as well who are very similar to these creatures. And there, they simply accompany the, Lord, the, the glory of the Lord. They don't have a, a mission or a, a purpose or a ministry, kind of like going out like Zechariah's chariots do, but they simply accompany the glory of the Lord as angelic beings. And they're amazing, and they're described there as having eyes all over their body and these wheels that turn and you know, the chariots here have different colors which represent things like possibly war and, and famine and, and uh, the glory of God itself and different things like that. Uh, but they're, they're just amazing. And, and sometimes when, when we see angels like this or beings like this that God created, remember everything in the heavens and on the earth is made by God. These aren't coexisting beings with God. These are beings that God made, uh, presumably for his enjoyment and to share his glory. Remember we too as as people, what's, actually, this is really fascinating. As human beings, we are more in the image of God than these beings are. Isn't that pretty cool? Like, we, we look more, we resemble the God of the universe more than even these angelic beings. And these are amazing beings that are kind of unapproachable, you know? Like, we don't exactly know who they are and what they're doing and how they look. We can get pieces of this. But I think sometimes that's the point. There's a weirdness and an awesomeness to God that we can't comprehend. God is the ultimate other. He's not like us. You know, or another way to, to look at this is, you are not God, and I'm not. And that's good news. That's part of the gospel is we're not God. We're his creatures. And he loves us deeply. And he went to great lengths to die for us and to fight our battles and to bring us back to himself. But even beings like this can remind us that we're not him, and he is the great other. And in, in some sense, he's unapproachable. We can't get to him unless he comes here and becomes like one of us. We'll get some more of that uh, later on. But it's okay that this stuff humbles us. Like, if you're th- you read stuff like this and think, I have no idea what's going on, you're in pretty good company. I mean, no one fully knows. Humility, as we approach the Bible, is a very important thing. Um, and yet, I think it should make us want to see him at the same time. Like, I, I read this and I think, I would love to see that. I would love to see this piece of the glory of the Lord. And, and, and if a passage of the Bible gets you there, it gets you pretty far. You know, if it, want, if it kind of evokes mystery and awe, it makes you want to see him and catch a glimpse of his glory, um, then it's, it's doing quite, quite a bit. Uh, past this, though, uh, Revelation 6 in the New Testament talks about similar types of angelic beings. So, 
If you've heard the phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse before, that comes from Revelation 6 as well, uh, where there are four horsemen. They're not chariots, but similar beings who have similar colors and, uh, and I think maybe a similar ministry. We don't know this for sure because Zechariah is kind of silent on this. But there in Revelation 6, it's a bit more clear in terms of what they represent because it says there that they represent things like death and war and famine and are birth pangs of signs of coming wrath. So the ministry they serve in Revelation is to be kind of glimpses in the world of coming judgment, to kind of warn people and prepare, to kind of express God's patience. Types of suffering can be an image of, of future judgment. So it can be kind of this, have the smelling salt aspect to it. When we suffer, we might, we might say it just as human beings or Christian human beings, those in the room are Christians, suffering draws me to God. That's kind of a birth pang type thing where, and Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24 as well. And by the way, I'm throwing out a few chapters here with Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 6 and Matthew 24. If you want more on this, I encourage you to read those chapters so you can get more confused and just kind of rejoice all the more in that. But uh, those are a few things. But in Matthew 24, um, Jesus talks about like birth pangs come suddenly upon a pregnant woman and point to the birth, so do these types of events prefigure coming wrath. So when earthquakes come, it's a sign of a final earthquake when God will truly shake the worlds and raise the dead and judge all and establish his final kingdom. And he's had, he, has, he has other things there as well. The creatures of Zechariah 6 may be the same or they may be different creatures, but one thing I, I think they share, and that is that the purpose of their ministry is to precede a greater work of God. Their work in both chapters precedes a greater work of God. In both passages, they come right beforehand to point to something more. And so like a trailer of a movie gives way to the movie itself, I think these creatures are working. They're patrolling the earth, and they're doing something to kind of herald the coming of the king and say, God's about to do something amazing. Which leads me then to the second more important vision we'll spend most of our time in this morning. As if, again, the first vision, the chariots, were setting the stage for this, this next second greater work of God uh, that's depicted in uh, the image of the priest king. So uh, the second vision then uh, is the image of uh, this branch. Uh, so when you see the word branch, maybe if you were here a few weeks ago, uh, you're kind of hearkening back to chapter 3. That's when it first comes up. When you see branch, you should think branch of David. David was a king of the Old Testament. And the prophets talk about this sprout of David or this kind of genealogical branch that will extend out from David uh, and will uh, kind of signify or point to another one like him who's coming in the future. It's a big part of the prophets' messages is another David is coming. If you understand that, you'll actually see a lot of commonality and you'll understand some language and you'll just be able to grasp a little bit more what the prophets are getting at. Another one like David is um, on the horizon. We'll talk about him more in just a second. But the second vision is basically a picture of Joshua the high priest being crowned and then mention is made of his royal throne. So it's a very explicit blending of the Old Testament offices of priest and king. A priest is being made king. And so like here in this image, uh, we, you know, we, we see the priest kind of uh, uh, clothed in some of the priestly garb, uh, like the checkered um, cloth, the 12 stones represent, around his neck representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the turban, 
Uh, he also has characteristics in this vision, like being a temple builder and branch-like qualities, like in the bottom, like I mentioned, but, but also being crowned. This is a very explicit blending. So we see here in the passage, it's not just a picture of Joshua the high priest, but silver and gold being fashioned into a crown. Then royal, his royal throne is mentioned as well. Royal honor is mentioned as well when Zechariah sees this, this heavenly picture. This is crucial to understand. If you don't know this yet about the Old Testament, um, please hear this or remember this for a lot of you. Uh, without this, this doesn't make a lot of sense. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament before Christ, the offices of priest and king were never blended. The offices of priest and king were never, even in Joshua, the high priest, who was a historical figure, he never was actually king. This is a vision, not a, not a like, historical reality here in 520 B.C. So even, even in his case, uh, this, this was never uh, a blended thing. The Levites, uh, the tribe of Levi, were priests. They gave, they gave a rise to the priests, and by blood, uh, new priests kind of in successive generations rose up and served and so forth. No Levite ever took the throne. And the kings primarily came from a different tribe, and that's Judah. So tribal differences. It, it'd be like, uh, you know, us separating the presidency from the Supreme Court. The president can't be a Supreme Court justice. You know, something like that. So there are a couple, though, of Old Testament exceptions to this. So it's basically a hard and fast rule. And I, and I think the Bible's written this way to be hard and fast Old Testament rule, but there are a couple of blips on the radar. What was that? And the story kind of keeps going. David, going back to him for a second, was one of these exceptions. Uh, king David was king. Uh, he was uh, the... Um, son of Jesse, he was uh, arguably the, greater, the greatest king in, of the Old Testament in the sense that God covenanted with him and in his heart was steadfast after the Lord and a bunch of other things and reasons. But David was king, but he also did priestly things in the Old Testament at times. David was king, but he did priestly things. So he's not a priest, but that adjectival idea. He, did, he was kind of priestly, kind of a priestly king. So, for example, there are passing mentions of him wearing priestly garments at times. And then the story kind of keeps going on without mention. Kind of like, wait a minute, and the story keeps going. There, there's passing mention of his sons serving as high priests, or just priests. And David uh, eating the bread of the presence when he was hungry, running from Saul who wanted to kill him, and he was hungry, he was with his friends, and he ate this bread of the presence, which was a temple furnishing inside the temple, the priest's job was to always have bread there. And there are reasons for this I won't go into today for time's sake. But there's bread there, and it was, the, it was the priest's job to eat it before it spoiled than to replenish it on a regular basis. There's a story in the Old Testament where David just goes in because he's hungry and he eats it, and then the, he leaves with his friends, and the story just goes on. You're kind of like, well, wait a minute. What's going on? That's priestly, unlawful. Yet he's never condemned for any of those things. This latter story is actually the story that Jesus mentions in the New Testament when these religious people, uh, pastor types actually, Pharisees they're called, get on his case for not keeping the Sabbath. He seems to be breaking the Sabbath at this day of rest commandment and his, and his uh, disciples are as well. And they're like, what's going on? Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus quotes this story. He lays the gauntlet down and basically says to pastor types, which is kind of a, a jab, he says, have you guys ever read the Bible? 
If you did, you'd be familiar with a story about David who rose above the law and was not condemned for it. And you would have heard the prophets who said another one like him was coming in his line who's similar to him. And, and wholesale change would ensue. A new testament, a new covenant would come with him. And so Jesus' point is to say, the Sabbath is fading. I am the Sabbath now. So these disciples who are with me are kind of keeping the Sabbath by their proximity to me, Jesus. It's not about resting a day of the week anymore. It's about belief in me. I give them rest for their souls in a way the law never could. That's his point there. But here, just understand the story that he points to for Zechariah 6's purposes, for today's purposes, He's referring to a story where the king is acting in priestly ways and he's not condemned for it. So when we talk about then the exact nature of who Jesus Christ is, when we say he's the son of David or the branch, to use uh, Zechariah's language here again, we're not just saying one in the line of David, but one like David. And like this Joshua in the vision. A Joshua like this is coming. And this is not something the historical Joshua, the high priest, ever saw. He was never king. Those were separated. But one like this Joshua, kingly, priestly combo deal thing is going to come and change the rules and rule and ultimately save in a very final uh, sense of the idea. So when we get to Jesus then, Jesus, we say, the Bible says, is the Lion of Judah. That means he's the king. He's the king of kings. He's the son of David in that sense. And yet, he's true high priest as well who brings us to God through the sacrifice of himself. So the, the big question here with, with that kind of heavy theological stuff, priest-king combo stuff, it actually should be one of the more important Old Testament motifs that we see in the Bible. Not to overplay, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that. It's one of the more important prophetic motifs we see is this new combo, breaking Old Testament rules, for the sake of this new priest-king combo thing. To make people scratch their heads in the original context, but look ahead to something different. And now on this side, we see clearly. But, but the big question here is, why is this important? Always a great question to ask about anything in the Bible. But why is it important that Jesus is both king and priest together? Why, why is the prophecy of a coming priest-king, the branch of David, temple-building figure, such good news. I think there are two things. Uh, one is broad. We'll start with that one. I, I think in, in general, it shows us that, it reminds us, all the themes, all the offices, all the roles, all the figures of the Old Testament find their goal in Jesus. It's kind of like an, an hourglass tipped on its side then cut in half. Weird image, but whatever. It's kind of, you start big and broad, many in various ways God speaks, and many in various events and types and psalms and oracles and, and things, and then they all kind of funnel down into this one person. Everything is about him. Everything. Always God's plan A. God is the master storyteller. He doesn't just allow his son or, or cause his son to arrive in Genesis 4. Uh, but rather he starts to whisper him and then gets progressively louder and louder and louder until we get to the prophets here where th there's, there's no Old Testament version of this. I mean, they're right on the threshold now of the coming of the Christ. 
You know, and so it shows us that everything's about Jesus. He, he, he's the one then that doesn't just atone for our sin like a priest, but he rules over death like a king over a slain enemy at the same time. Like David over a decapitated Goliath is our Christ over our sin. And when you think about David in that story, standing as a boy over a giant and hacking at his head with a sword until it lopped off and holding it up in victory, you should think about Jesus doing that over your sin. That's what, that's what it's about. That's how decisive of a victory he's won over everything bad you've ever done. He's hacked its head off. That's how much he loves you and me. That's how strong he is. That's how much he rules over sin and death. Because Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of the giant slayer. He's the son of the giant decapitator. He comes in his wake to fulfill the smaller things that he started. And I'm telling you, this is a sidebar here, by the way, but I'm telling you, if you believe that story is about Christ, if you really believe right here and right here, that Jesus is in, in that way ruling over your sin, you will sin less this week than if you didn't believe that. The power to sin less does not come from you. It comes from believing that God has cut the head off of your sin and truly, actually applying that to your heart. Do you believe it? See, when you blend priest and king, I think what, one of the things that happens is you, you add a degree of finality and power to priestly work. You blend the two offices. I think what, what you're seeing is a, a future picture here from Zechariah's perspective, a future picture of God doing priestly type things, bringing us to God in a final, victorious, eternal way. That's why God covenants with David and says all these kind of eternal things in 2 Samuel 7, but that's another sermon. Uh, but there's a finality, a kingliness to the priestly work. So that's the first thing. The second thing is a bit more involved, and we'll go to Hebrews here to talk about this, but the second why is this important is in light of the differences of the two types of priests, the Old Testament types and this kind of final New Testament priest-king type. So the difference between the two types of priesthood is very important. According to the book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, I'll just read a verse here. This is part of a larger argument, understand. I encourage you to go back uh, to this. But in Hebrews 7, it calls Jesus a new kind of priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. So bear with me here for a second. If that's a new name, uh, rejoice. Melchizedek's a great guy. And uh, he's a very important individual, actually, in the Bible. One of the most important individuals we have in the Bible, and I'll kind of explain why here, but I'm going to give you the 30,000-foot view. If you want to talk to me more, please shoot me an email. Uh, talking about Melchizedek over coffee would make my week, honestly. I would love to do that with you guys, uh, so please let me know, or after a service. Uh, we also have a, a sermon online uh, in our Genesis series because he comes up in Genesis 14 alone in Psalm 110 in the Old Testament, but narratively in Genesis 14, that's on our uh, podcast online or in, on our website. If you want to uh, listen to that, just go ahead and find the Genesis page and you'll, you'll see it. Um, but he, he says here, so in, in Hebrews it says that this is a New Testament book. Jesus is a new kind of priest after the order of Melchizedek. And when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. 
So Jesus is a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who himself, so before when I mentioned there are blips in the radar of the general rule of priest-king combo things, uh, David is one example. Melchizedek is the only other, the sole other example that there is. So, and he predates David by a number of centuries. So think, when you think of priest-king combo things, you should think of Melchizedek, David, Zechariah 6, the vision, and then Jesus. That's kind of the thread you should think all the way through the Bible. Psalm 110 talks about these things in kind of psalmic form, but in terms of like when they really come up, you should think about especially Melchizedek and David and Jesus. Zechariah has a role though in this today, and we're seeing that, uh, the priest-king idea. So Jesus is a priest after that order, not Levi, which was the Old Testament kind of order of priests. He was from the tribe of Judah, a different tribe altogether, and he was both, not just priest, but, but priest and king. And then it says this, when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. And that's what I want you guys to see today. More than understanding Melchizedek perfectly, I know it's probably going over some of your heads and that's okay. Um, look into it and talk to me. I'd love to talk more. But understand this though, practically, that what he's, how he's theologizing about this is he's saying there's a difference and when you change the priesthood, you change all the laws that wrap around it like planets around a sun. You change the whole thing. The whole system changes. So he's talking about there is things like the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and the Sabbath laws and, and uh, civil laws, sacrificial laws, things like that. But civil laws that kind of dictated society for Israel. The whole thing. You change everything. Or in New Testament terms, we would say Jesus fulfills things and by fulfilling, he replaces. So what this is doing is it's lumping the idea of priesthood law and covenant or testament together, a way we connect with God. So the, the, the idea of there being a new priest comes with the idea of a new law, which then comes with the idea of a brand new testament or covenant or set of stipulations that dictate our relationship as sinners with the holy God. That whole thing changes. New kind of mediator. It doesn't pull those things apart like string cheese. You know, we, we might think, great, a new kind of priest, but God still expects us to keep his laws if we are truly to be saved in the end, right? But that would be like thinking we're still under the United States laws after we move and gain citizenship in another country. No longer under the former laws. Brand new laws. It's different. David, actually, I, um, before I get to that, I saw Tim Keller write a tweet this this morning. So uh, he just said, Jesus is not in addition to what you've done. He's something brand new altogether. Jesus is not in addition to what you've done. He's something completely brand new. David eating the bread of the presence was a sign of change. Zechariah's vision in chapter 6, the priest king, a sign of change. Jesus, Jesus Christ, is that change. He fulfills them all. And this is why the priest king idea is such good news and not just some passing informational tidbit from the Bible. There's a change in the law, a change in the thing that mediates you and me to God. A distinct change in the covenants and testaments and what it means to be in relationship with the God of the universe. It's, it, there's no more do this and you will live, but rather believe in Jesus and you will live. Romans 10 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness 
the type of spiritual holiness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by him. But look at the, the conjunction here. But, difference, but the righteousness based on faith says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Qualitative differences, you guys. These are not meant to be blended, at least if we want to be biblicists here and, and think as the Bible does about these matters. They are oil and water. They are completely different. The latter is completely new. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a but in verse 6. There would be an and. But there's no and there. It's a but. The righteousness based on faith, our trust in God, says this. This is how we're righteous before God. We believe. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We believe that God raised him from the dead. We believe he's alive. We believe he slayed death for us and our sin. We believe in those things, and, and then we're saved. That's the new law. When Hebrews says there's a change in the law, we, we move on from moral commands. Move, at least the, the necessity to keep them to be in covenant with God. We move on to the covenantalness that's like a blanket wrapped around those commands. And instead, in place, is this man on a cross next to criminals dying for us in love. That, that, that's, that's the essence of the New Testament that we're called to believe in. So, this ends human striving. I mean, this is... There's movement here, beautiful movement from slave master to father. So Old to New Testament, slave master to father, job to wedding, righteousness earned to righteousness given as a gift. And, and so, so Christ then himself being the new law, it's a change in the law, he himself is that law. The phrase, uh, there's a phrase, law of Christ, used repeatedly in the, Old, in the New Testament. We're under now this, not under law, but under grace. We're under this law of Christ, which is not really a law at all. It's this historical truth that God became like us to die for us, substitutionarily. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the New Testament says. This is why there's such movement. This is why Zechariah 6 is so important to get this. It's not just a passing theological prophetic tidbit that Bible nerds rejoice in. This is something every Christian should rejoice in. Because if it wasn't here, we would still be under the burden of needing to be good to be saved. Not only that, needing to be perfect to be saved. That's different, right? Galatians 3 says, if you want to be justified or made right by the law, you need to keep every little dot and tittle, every detail, all of it, perfectly. But the righteousness that comes by faith doesn't say do, it says believe. Qualitative difference. And it comes with the the arrival of a new kind of priest, a priest king. And the whole system is changed. So now, the church is built on the man on the cross and the empty tomb, not the law. So it's his love. You know, we, we say this here a lot. His love which saves us from our sins and itself moves in us to love others. That's something the law could never really do. Uh, which leads me now to this last point today, this last section, um, which is more on the second vision. Helping to build the temple of the Lord. 
So here's a part of the gospel according to chapter 6. I mean, aside from what we already talked about. Here's part of the gospel. According to this chapter, this priest king, Jesus, will come and he will build a new temple for God's dwelling, which is uh, not just a physical building in the Old Testament. That happens historically. But what's really being talked about here, we know this because we know what kind of temple the priest king, the ultimate Joshua, built. Was that a physical building? Was Jesus a construction guy? Was he an architect? Did did he build a a building? When he talked about temple, what did he talk about? He talked about two things, his body and then the church, a spiritual temple. See, we've moved from lesser to greater, physical to spiritual. Uh, 1 Peter 2.5 talks about Christians in this capacity. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And it talks about Jesus is the cornerstone, that kind of the ultimate foundational stone of that building. So, so now you and I, all the Christians in this room right now, constitute a, a new temple of God in a much more glorious way than anything the physical Old Testament temple could even dream about. Because God actually lives within us. Those in his image, those he loves. No more separation, which the Old Testament temple had but just him walking among us perfectly inside our lives and amongst us as we gather in community, big and small ways. So the New Testament then for the church too, uh, we said this about Jesus, the New Testament never asks us to build a physical temple. The church is the new spiritual temple. There's never a command in the New Testament that says build a big building for God to, to dwell in. That time has passed. It's been actually leveled. And now in the place of it, we have a brand new system. So look at the wonderful addendum, though, to this idea. So part of the gospel is Jesus will build us up into his, into his holy place for where he dwells. But look at the wonderful addition here, um, which, I guess I'll go back here. Verse 15, those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Those who are far off will be gathered in and help. So this priest king will be the builder. It is he the Joshua, who shall build up the temple of the Lord, save people from their sins, and dwell among them, but yet he will call people from all around to help in this process. So basically what this is, is it's a vision of seeing saved, gathered sinners substantially contributing to the building up of the church, which is ultimately Jesus' job. Very important to see this. This is a vision of of others besides Jesus, saved, gathered sinners being gathered in to substantially contribute to the edification, the maturing, the growth, the encouragement, the growth in knowledge, the love of the people of God. It's about us. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 says this about church leaders, but also about the whole church. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For, here it is, here's the temple idea, for building up the body of Christ. So, this really important verse here for just Christian life in ministry. Note a couple of things. It's a church leader's job. So, So all of you who are a leader at Hiawatha Church, elders, deacons, community group leaders, you could just be in a role of like being a mentor, discipler of someone else. But 
but especially formal leaders. It's a leader's job to equip all the Christians of the church to minister alongside each other to build them up into a new temple of God. See, we, we can't, we can't the, the idea that it's just the, the leader's job to minister is inconsistent with this idea. Right? It's a pastor's job, it's a leader's job to equip the whole church to lead together and to minister together and to be part of the exciting job and adventure it is to help build up this new temple of God that has been being built for 2,000 years. It's still being built because we're all works in progress. We're being saved, even though we've already been saved, if you're a Christian. We're being saved as well, and we will be saved in the end. Salvation is past, present, and future as we believe the gospel. So a big question here is how. And I'm just going to go through a few things here. Um, today, sort of quickly. It's more to say. Uh, if you're asking this question, how do I build up the church? Um, and, and, and you should. And, and I, um, again, I want that to be clear. That there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have this responsibility. There's no such thing as a Christian. I don't care how young you are in the faith. I don't care what your personality is what your gifts are, your talents. Every Christian is called to be a part of the ministry and to be a part of building other Christians up in the faith. You can't read this any other way. Actually, 1 Corinthians 12 says something similar. It says, every Christian has a spiritual gift. This, this piece of the Holy Spirit's kind of been broken off and given to Christians to use to build up other believers in the faith. That there's never been a Christian who has ever lived the past 2,000 years, who has somehow been in the church and not called to build up the church, other Christians. It's, it's impossible. And so it's, it's not a, it shouldn't be a burden. This will be, there'll be burdensome days when we think about this. This is more just an invitation to see God wants to use you. He really does. It doesn't matter. He doesn't show any discrimination or partiality here. He wants to use you. He has gifted you for his purposes to make mature his bride, to make spotless his bride, the church, in preparation for that ultimate wedding day we wait for, to use a different metaphor. So, the, the, so this question, how do I build up the church? Four things. One, use your spiritual gifts. Uh, spiritual gifts are expressions of God's grace to other Christians. Uh, you know, so things like teaching to things like serving to more miraculous things, like miraculous gifts of healing people from diseases. There's different categories. Uh, they all exist. Um, what, whatever it is, though, some of you have one gift, some of you have multiple. There'll be different versions of gifts. Uh, if you have different kinds of teaching gifts or kinds of serving gifts or kinds of healing gifts, the Bible speaks in the plural when it talks about these things. First Peter 4 summarizes the main two types of gifts in, when it says, speak and serve. There are speaking gifts, word gifts, and there are deed-based gifts or service gifts, but both serve the purpose of giving God fame and glory by building up Christians, by building up the church, pointing them back to Christ, expressing grace. So when someone's talking about grace, talking about the fact that God served them on the cross when he died for their sins, someone over here is using the gift in a physical way. They're actually serving them by helping them move 
serving them by consulting because they're great at gardening and this person kills everything they plant. And so they consult uh, to help them have a beautiful yard. See, see how they're different but complementary? Speaking gifts are, are, Paul says, greater in the sense that they most explicitly get to Jesus. We shall strive after those, but these aren't like so less that we should not be seeking them. They're, part, they're, they're parts of the body that we need. They're, they're indispensable. So whether we speak the gospel or show the gospel, that we, we demonstrate and speak Christ. In that way, we build the church up. So think every day and week, how can I speak or demonstrate Jesus to someone else at Hiawatha? Think locally. Don't, don't, I mean, try to avoid going global with that. I mean, there's a day for that, but just think locally. Keep it contained here. Think practically. Think in a concrete manner. Who do I know who's in trouble? Who do I know who, who needs to be built up in the faith? Everybody. But who do I know that I can demonstrate, show off the glories of Christ, the grace of Jesus with my actions or my words? Formal, informal, spontaneous, planned. It's a great question to ask. And if everybody in this church is asking that, I mean, think about that. Wouldn't that be amazing? Think how mature we, how much more, and we're, by God's grace, an amazingly healthy church. But think about the possibility there of, of being all the more mature and built up into a holy temple for God's dwelling, if we're asking that question. Second, uh, consider, seriously consider church-based training here, or at whatever church your home church is, if, you, if your church has that, um, formal or informal. If you don't feel like you know this book that well yet, the Bible that well, or if you don't feel like you could effectively build up another Christian with it, using this, then consider learning at your church more about how to do that. In community, guided by the Spirit. We have lots of classes here and training uh, maybe some of you are thinking about pursuing leadership, deaconship or eldership here, community group leadership, lay leadership. Pursue it. Consider it. I, is there a good reason why you wouldn't learn more about the Bible or theology or mission with your church? Is there a really good reason why you wouldn't? Think about it that way. Is there a reason why you'd prioritize something else over that? Seriously think about it. Talk to us for uh, more information. Uh, third is love. As we say here, God loved you unto death, and so we show it. Uh, love is greater than the gifts because it gets more at the core of who God is. Uh, so I think that this point calls us as believers to forgive, show patience and kindness, uh, not to compare or compete with other Christians, and consider them better than yourselves. Consider every other Christian that you know in this church better, more significant than you are. This is pulling from Philippians 2. Uh, and, the, and the power from that comes from the gospel because God considered us more important than himself. Say by grace, not by works. Nothing to boast about. So the, the, the power to not serve our own agendas comes from proper meditation on Jesus and the gospel. But in its own way, that images what a, a true healthy life in Christ can look like for people and it puts them first. And just like God did. So use your gifts, but especially love. Love is greater than all the gifts because love truly gets more at the heart of what God thinks of you. He's not your boss. Christianity is not a job. It's a wedding. Don't treat it like a job. 
It's a celebration. It's a feast. You know, so whereas other religions are cutting themselves because they want to get closer to God through their own suffering, because they're trying to atone for their own sins, Christians are feasting around the table with God because he's brought everything to us and there's nothing more to do. See the, the vast difference there, guys? Saved by grace, not by works. And the last thing here is pray. When's the last time you prayed that God would build up Hiawatha Church into a new temple for his presence? Not, not to make you feel bad about not praying those words. It's, 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 it's an invitation, uh, not a burden. Um, pray that. Pray that. Pray for unity here. Pray against division and slander and gossip and dissension and competition and deception. And pray instead for unity in the gospel. Because God loves, loves unity. Amidst diversity. Uh, it is one of the biggest marks of the Holy Spirit's presence in a church. When different people who are kind of at odds still love and respect each other. When that's present, the Holy Spirit's there. Um, way more than gifts of healing, speaking in tongues, all that stuff. What's more important is love and unity. Pursue it hard. Press that into the, the community of faith here with prayer and with action. At the end of the day, what builds the church up? Who builds the church up? At the end of the day, it's Jesus and his gospel alone. In uh, Zechariah 6, it says this, he shall build the temple, speaking of the priest king. Matthew 16, Jesus gets very clear, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it, not prevail against it. And I'll preach, right? Jesus is saying this to you and for your benefit. Because you are the church, you guys. Don't keep this, try, try not to keep this so objective to you where it's not personal. Jesus is saying, I will build you, lost sinners I love, up into a place where I can dwell. He's promising to do this. So, you know, whereas the Old Testament was built on commandments and stayed standing based on people's moral righteousness, but how'd that work out? It came crumbling down time and time again. The New Testament temple is built on the gospel and grace and stays standing by grace because Jesus himself is the builder. When we think of building the church up, we have to think of that, of him. His body given for us, not the old commandments. And so when we talk about good works then as Christians, um, good works must flow from and point to the gospel for them to be effective at all in building a Christian up. A random good deed is not as powerful as a good deed that says, in deed form or with words, God did this kind of thing for you through his son. Remember? Remember that? It's an invitation to freshly believe it and to see it in physical form. So two things here um, today uh, in conclusion. First is uh, Zechariah 6, like any passage really in the Bible, is a call to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe. Ze Zechariah 6 says, basically with the image of the priest king, saved by grace, by a priest king after the order of Melchizedek and David, not the old system or law that was accompanied, uh, that accompanied the old priests, but a new kind, based on a resurrection, based on a, based on a cross, based on a gift, 
not the old system or works or self-righteousness. God wants to build you up. If you feel like you're in shambles today, if your future's uncertain, if you feel full of sin, unable to shake that sinful habit, full of shame over it or guilt, then this is amazingly good news. God looks into that and says, I want to build you up. I want to reconstruct you into a new temple, a new creation. That's what this is saying. And he's the active party. Right? He's not saying build yourself up. It's saying this one saving, messianic, temple building, priest king, full of grace figure is coming to do the building himself. That's the gospel. That's like the same thing as saying Jesus came to save us himself. He didn't say save yourself. And this is something that's not just for conversion, but for every day of your life as a Christian. So many Christians I know, and I'm one of them, used to think this way. Saved by grace, but I stay in the faith by doing good works. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The gospel is different, not an addition onto the old system of needing to do good to stay in relation with God, but a brand new break. Every day, our hope is Zechariah, Zechariah 6. Every day, it's in the priest king and not in another Levitical priest associated with Old Testament law. Every day, it's in that hope. Every day, we draw life from that. So believe the gospel and um, cherish it. Cherish it for the first or a thousandth time today. God loves you. The second thing is build the church. By grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit and for God's glory. Teach, preach, speak, serve, give, love, all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it specifically, intentionally, and tangibly this week to someone else at Hiawatha Church. That is part of what this is saying. Uh, you're not saved by how well you do this. You're saved unto it. Look at your church, your, this local expression of the greater global, all of history, temple of God that he's been building and say, how can I play a part? We have to ask that question. And if that's still um, kind of abstract, please talk to a leader. That is, I mean, honestly, look at my job description personally, and a lot of people have that here, but my job description, that's right at the top of the list is helping you all become a part of this temple, spiritual temple building experience here. If I'm not doing that, I'm failing at my job. Ephesians 4 says that. I'm called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Many people are here in leadership. Many more of you uh, will be here in a different church uh, someday. Not all are leaders, and that's okay. But all, are, all leaders and non-leaders are called to contribute to the upbuilding of the church. And so, so consider that a gracious invitation into a more full life as a Christian. If your life is just sitting here once a week, uh, there's a much better way. There's a, a, a much more of a way to not waste your life and, and to be a part of what God is up to in the local church. Because Zechariah 6 is happening right here, right now. It's what he's partly seeing. And, uh, and so he's gathering people to do this. So, so consider that a, not a burden, but a gracious invite into a more involved and full life as a Christian in the local church. If it's abstract, please uh, uh, pray and talk to me or another leader at the church, and we can just brainstorm with you and uh, talk about what that might look like. But believe the gospel and, and build the church.
Let's pray. God, thank you so much, God, for uh, this passage. Uh, Help us, Father, to respond in belief and thankfulness and action this week as um, we disperse and scatter out into our uh, wonderful but broken city. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to spend the next uh, few minutes here to close our service going through a time of communion.